Some of you may remember our last sermon series as we looked at the coming of Jesus again. And one of the themes, that, one of the phrases that really stuck out for me was the, was the phrase, don't panic. Um, now, when I had my sermon in that series, um, the, the phrase really caught me, and I said something to the effect of, hey, wouldn't that be great if it could be on the cover of a Bible in large, friendly letters? Well, wouldn't you know it, about a week later, I found on my desk, in my office, somebody had bought me a brand new Bible with the phrase, don't panic on it. <laughs> so whoever you are, thank you. <laughs> um, next, I think a, a camera would be a really great... No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have been using, yeah, don't panic, thank you. Uh, I have been using this Bible. I hope that's evident this morning. The church in Theatira was about 30 miles southeast of Pergamum, down in the Lycus River Valley. Theatira had the distinction of being the sort of town that was on its way to places. Um, If you wanted to get to Pergamum, which was the governing capital of the region, you had to go through Theatira. Now, you might get to Pergamum for a number of different reasons. You might want to go there because you wanted to be involved in government in some fashion. You might want to invade. Either way, you still had to get through Theatira in one fashion or another. The wealth of Theatira came from several different forms of industry. First... Theotira was well known in the ancient world for a very specific shade of purple called Turkish red. Apparently, purple is a very hard color to make because it's not really found in nature. And so, if you were able to figure out how to make this shade of purple, you would do really well for yourself. Because it is so rare, it is so expensive. And so, it became known as the color for royalty because they were the only ones who could afford it. In fact, if you look through the book of Acts, if you actually know that book at all, you may remember the mention of a fabric artisan named Lydia, who was a wealthy woman based out of Theatira, and whose second home, she was wealthy enough to have a second home, was the house church in Philippi. Now, I'll get to the second uh, industry in a minute, but because these industries were so good at what they did, there arose in Theatira a collection of what were called artisan guilds, and they were essentially like today's unions, but there was a whole lot of other stuff lumped in with them. Because the largest spaces for meeting were all the religious places, the temples, the guilds became intricately tied up within the religious systems of the city, which meant if you were going to be part of an artisan guild, you'd need to participate in the religious festivals and feasts of Rome. Now, what that meant specifically here was the cult of Apollo. Now, Apollo was known as the son of Zeus, or the son of God. And Apollo was the patron god of the smelting industry, which was the other major industry in Theatira. They had become excellent at the art of smelting bronze and copper. Likenesses of the emperor and of Apollo were often on either side of the coins in Theatira, since both were known as the son of God. Now, some of this may sound just a little bit vaguely familiar for some of you. So listen for some of this in this passage as we read from Revelation 2, John's vision of Jesus' words to the church that found itself in the city of Theatira. And it says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Theatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. 
I know all the things that you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Theatira who have not followed these false teachings, these deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I'll ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority that I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So as with every message in the book of Revelation, Jesus begins by identifying himself with a familiar but reframed imagery. It's not Apollo, and it's not the emperor who are the son of God. It's Jesus. And his eyes are like the flames of a smelting forge, burning like brilliant fire. See, the smelting forge was intended for purifying metal. And so the flames would heat the metal up, and the impurities would come off of that metal in the form of slag. Jesus' eyes pierce everything and everyone, judging with perfect holiness and unmatched wisdom. And this Son of God, his feet are like burnished bronze. They are pure, they are dependable, they are steady and strong. And then the Son of God compliments the Theatirans. They've made some progress. In the church in Theatira, those fiery eyes see an increase of love and faith, service and patient endurance. There is good discipleship happening here in Theatira. And people are starting to display some of those fruits of the Spirit. While others in, say, Ephesus have lost their first love, or as we'll hear next week, those in Sardis really look alive, but they're actually dead, Theotira is actually on an upward trajectory in a few things. But of course, then comes the sound of the other shoe. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. Ouch. Revelation is a genre of biblical literature called an apocalypse. Now, an apocalypse is not how we necessarily think of it in that end-of-the-world sort of way. It uses a lot of vivid imagery and symbolism to peel back the mask of reality and expose what's going on underneath everything. In this sort of text, we see a cosmic significance behind what are ordinary events. So why Jezebel? Why does he use this language? Well, to find the answer, we have to travel back about a thousand years before this, when Israel was still a nation of its own. 
Now, it was a nation that was actually split into two pieces at that particular point. And the king of the northern kingdom was a guy named Ahab. But Ahab was not a great king. In fact, this is what scripture has to say about him. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. And over the next few chapters of 1 Kings, we start to see that while Ahab is technically the king, it's really Jezebel who becomes the power behind the throne. She's responsible for introducing Baal worship and the Asherah pole to Israel, things that required things like child sacrifice and prostitution, for killing hundreds of Israel's priests, and for just generally pushing the nation of Israel in a very dark direction. Now, before we keep going, I want to be very clear about something. You may have heard the name Jezebel used in a very demeaning way, as a a label for somebody that they call a siren leading men astray. That is not true. That has no place in this scripture. Jezebel's gender has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on. In fact, I'd suggest it's more accurate to say that the name Jezebel could apply to a man or a woman who leads those astray, who calls himself a false prophet, who claims supernatural wisdom but justify hatred and sin. See, Theatira had come under the influence of that kind of person. Like the city of Pergamum, there was great pressure to conform to the way that the world was squeezing them into its mold, to practice the idolatrous practices of the empire's state religion participating in these religious festivals. But while the pressure in Pergamum came from the outside, and that was a little bit of the case in Theatira, the the real problem in Theatira came from inside, from this false teacher. And the author calls her Jezebel. Like Ahab's wife, this person was leading the people of Israel astray, teaching the people of Theatira to eat the food of idols and to practice sexual immorality. And see, these were both very common practices within the state religion, practiced in the trade guilds, which meant that the meat was a part of a meal dedicated to the local deity, which was usually Apollo, and then following dinner, there was a whole bunch of temple prostitution in a sort of ritualistic kind of way. Now, if we've heard already one had to be part of these artisan guilds in order to involve oneself in the local economy. To refuse to participate in these festivals and in these rituals was economically disastrous for somebody, since it basically meant snubbing the relationship with the other artisans and the members of the trade guild, you know, the people who you depended on for survival. But on the other hand... The gospel says that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. That we are to have no other gods before him. Which in the polytheistic culture of Rome was kind of a foreign concept. There may be a hierarchy of gods, but they were all still gods. And the Christian culture also taught very countercultural values of abstinence before marriage and faithfulness in marriage. That was not a very Roman thing to teach. So you can see the conundrum. 
Now, we're not sure if Jezebel was knowingly leading people astray or if she thought she had maybe discovered some kind of theological loophole. Apparently, uh, one theory is that Jezebel was teaching um, these secret deeper truths that the author calls them, which is a potential code name for a sect called Gnosticism. But the author calls it the depths of Satan. Regardless, she calls herself a prophet, and Jesus says she's putting false words into the mouth of God. She's teaching that it was okay for the Christians to participate in these rituals because clearly their faith would be strong enough. And obviously Jesus forgives, right? You could walk into the lion's den but not be eaten, right? So dealing with a very similar situation in Rome, Paul wrote this. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of this wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Don't keep doing this stuff, Paul says even if it's for survival. Just because it feels good doesn't mean that it is good. Just because it seems economically better doesn't mean that it's better. That's not who you are anymore, he says. You're supposed to be done with that stuff, both in your mind and in your body. We are not to as he says, whore ourselves out to other gods as if God who is creator and provider isn't enough. And then in Colossians he writes this, see to it that no one takes you through captive, through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. See, what makes matters worse is not just that they're hearing this stuff, but that the leaders in the church in Theatira are actually permitting it to continue. They are complicit in their own deception. Paul knew that the problem for us is often not that we are exposed to bad teaching or half-truths, that's totally normal, but that we go back and immerse ourselves in it. And that gradually over time, we start to believe the lie and let ourselves get taken captive. See, it's the immersion in it that's the problem here. The way that it seeps into the culture through all the cracks. You think that you're only observing it from afar, and then one day, someone points out that it is actually consuming you. And it's been destroying your witness. Now, we've heard this phrase, witness, a number of times throughout the series. Uh, Craig and Jessica have both mentioned it several times. When we say witness, we don't mean that the Christians are somehow advertising Jesus. Okay? Advertisements are, they always overpromise and underdeliver. Have you ever seen any of those late night ads? You know exactly what I'm talking about. They have a tendency to try to make things look better than they really are. Instead, it's a more appropriate thing to say that we are the example of what communion with God is to look like. See, in order to first proclaim the news of Jesus, 
We must first be its fruit. We can't proclaim Jesus with any sort of credibility or authenticity unless we have first committed to Jesus and begun that process of transformation that God promises through his Holy Spirit. We must not simply say the message. We need to be the message, the whole message. Our behavior, our choices, our way of life matters. And sometimes the truth of the gospel actually is uncomfortable. Scripture says that. It can be unpopular, and sometimes it can be downright offensive to those outside the church, sometimes even to those inside the church. But compromising the message to make it taste better, to make our lives more comfortable, or to make people like us is not fulfilling the mission that Jesus has for us. And Jesus has some harsh words for those that allow this, yes, evil to overtake the church. So to Theatira, he says, I have given Jezebel some time to repent, but she will not turn away from her immorality. So he says, I will throw her in bed and allow those that have committed mental or even actual adultery with her to suffer greatly. The God whose eyes pierce everything, whose eyes see everything, says, I see what happens when you begin to follow this false teaching. He sees the metaphorical fruit of your adultery and says that he is going to end it. The bad apples must not contaminate the good apples in the barrel, as it were. See, to Jesus, a church that doesn't follow his teachings is useless. So what distracts us inside the church? What things undermine us from inside the church that cause these problems cause us to give in to these problems that are squeezing us from the outside. So I'd argue that um, the first one is probably apathy. Hate is not actually the opposite of love. I think apathy is. Love and hate are both intense. They are polarized from each other, yes, but they are both adamantly for and against things, and they both engage with passion. But apathy just doesn't care. It's not really for or against anything. It's just indifferent and dismissive. I think we'll hear more about this in our letter to Laodicea in a few weeks, but according to the latest research from the Barna Group, the fastest growing issue outside of American churches is not that they love or hate the things of Jesus, they just don't care. And many don't even know him. Do we hear what the Spirit is saying to us, church? Comfort. Comfort messes with us. Eugene Peterson, uh, a well-known pastor, wrote this. The church attracts to itself persons who like to live in the atmosphere of the holy, but have little interest in being holy themselves. They find delight in working on committees and find security in ordering their lives within the reassuring traditions of the fathers. They are faithful in showing up in church on Sundays and are fortified by listening to the moral instruction of their leaders. But they have no appetite for holiness or joy or love. They are wholly conventional and entirely dull. The church is sought out as a sanctuary for living in pious sloth. These people ignore anything to do with Christ that does not make them feel happy and good about themselves. 
If that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, it probably should. Basically, what he's saying is this. We really like to feel good. We don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be told that something is going to be hard. If we are more preoccupied with our architecture or our furniture or our musical preferences than we are with Jesus and who he is and how he's calling us to love our God and love our neighbor, we've probably fallen into this one. And just like the seven churches, we often need to be challenged in our thinking and in our actions because growth does not happen in the easy times. Growth happens in the hard times. When we have to do something uncomfortable, that's when we grow. Ask anyone on the Ecuador team if that was an easy week. But it was good. If we're more interested in our comfort and our nostalgia or our preferences and in our Lord and what he calls us to become, we will not grow. Idolizing our comfort means that we have been compromised. Do we hear what the Spirit is saying to us, church? Idolizing the past or the future. I love the work of C.S. Lewis's. In one of his books of fiction, he talks about how the present is where we are meant to live to find our focus. In the present moment, that is where we are to engage. Now the past is important. It's in the past that we learn from. It's in the successes and the mistakes of those who came before us that we learn. But if the past becomes where we live, then we become bitter, joyless people as we cling to what we can never have again. And likewise, the future is in front of us. And planning for the future is a duty of the present. But if we are to live in the future, we will never see the things that God is calling for us to do now. And just like becoming focused on the past, if we become focused on the future, we will become angry and anxious and frustrated for a time that never quite seems to arrive. But Lewis says that the best reason to live in the present is that the present moment is the one that most closely resembles eternity. Be in the now, and that is as close to heaven as it gets with God. Do we hear what the Spirit is saying to us, church? Lust for power. We really like to be right. And we really want others to notice that we're right. And we want to be in charge because we're right. And there's nothing wrong with being a Christ-following politician. Lord knows we need a few more of those. But church, legislation has never changed anyone's mind about the ways of Jesus. Only love does that. And if we are to follow Christ's example, we are to lay down our power. We are to share our power. We are to lift up the needy and the oppressed and the victim. How many scandals is it going to take? How many broken homes is it going to take? How many severed friendships and split churches is it going to take before we repent of our lust for control? 
When will we learn that it's not actors or athletes or CEOs or even any president? None of those can be our savior. You know what Jezebel did? When her husband, the king, wanted to buy this vineyard and the, the guy who owned the vineyard actually said no to the king. This is mine. I'm not going to sell this to you. She goes in and she has the family killed so that Ahab can now have his vineyard. He gets what he wants, but at what price? When we cozy up to power, that does not make a better church or a better faith because that is Jezebel's way. That's the way of compromise. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. Do we hear what the Spirit is saying to us, church? And there's lots of other things that undermine God's mission from within. Fear, anger, racism, sexism. Even good things like tradition and innovation, when taken out of their proper place, become distractions or even idols, and we become compromised. Do we hear what the Spirit is saying to us, church? So what are we to do with all of this? Well, I'm told that in the banking world, they have a whole department of people whose job it is to check currency for forgeries. But instead of trying to shoe them each and every new forgery, instead what they do is they teach people what the real thing looks like so well that they would know a forgery from a mile away. Their agency is taught to know the real thing so that the fake version is immediately obvious. See, false teaching can only endure if we don't know what is true. The scriptures have an awful lot to say about this one. After being run out of Thessalonica, Paul and his disciples spent some time with the Jews in the synagogue in Berea. And in Acts 17, we learn this. The Berean Jews were more honorable than those in Thessalonica. This was evident from the great eagerness with which many accepted the word and examined the scriptures each day to see whether Paul and Silas's teaching was true. Many came to believe, including a number of reputable Greek women and many Greek men. The Bereans were commended for examining the scripture themselves. They didn't just take the word of every teacher that came. They spent time learning on their own. How many of you go home afterwards during the week and you look at the scriptures we've talked about together and say, you know, I don't know if he was really right about this one. That is something we encourage you to do. Peel it apart. Spend time in the scriptures. Spend time in commentaries if you can find some. Talk about it with each other. This is the work of discipleship. Now apparently something must have worked because we find in Paul's letter to the Christians in Thessalonica these words. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong in Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies. Here it is. But test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Ask hard questions. Don't settle for a cheap stock answer. They are not helpful. Seek what God is really saying. 
and then from the book of Jude. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people has recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. A church that does not spend time in the scriptures is ripe for the picking of false teachers. If we don't take the time to know who God really is, we'll simply take the word of the person who is most articulate and most charismatic. See, this is actually what the church in Ephesus got right. They didn't tolerate false teachers. Their failure was that they got so hung up on the facts of truth that they forgot that truth is actually a person and in the character of Jesus. It's not a set of rules. Theatira went the other direction. They're commended for their love and their faith and their service. They were obviously a very welcome and hospitable place. But in their desire to love others, they actually compromised their integrity and then allowed the false teachers to convince them of things contrary to the gospel. So you can't have love without truth. And you can't have truth without love. Remove one, you remove the other. See, unlike letters to the other churches, here we find that there is a remnant. There's a group that has continued following the true gospel in spite of this false teacher and those that allowed her to continue. And these, says Jesus, and anyone who will repent, these are the ones who will overcome. Instead of giving them something to do, though, he says, your faithfulness and your perseverance is all that I need from you. He says, stay true to the end. And when you have overcome in the end, I have two things for you. All right, first, he quotes Psalm 2. Now, we heard Becca read this earlier as part of the worship set. It's a psalm that is often referred to by Jews as a messianic psalm, one that talks about the Messiah, this coming king and savior, who is given authority to rule over, or maybe better translated, to shepherd over the nations. All of creation with a rod of iron which means it's a firm grip that never wavers. In the psalm, the psalmist is lamenting how the nations, the people who are not God's people, try to rebel against God's kingdom this most excellent way. The psalmist sees how their efforts are in vain, that the king will have his way and will break their rebellion like one with an iron rod can smash a clay pot. They ever tried to put a clay pot back together that's fallen down? It's done. And in saying this, Jesus is saying that it will become the responsibility of those who stayed true to the gospel to shepherd the rest of this broken creation to the king. You who saw through the deception, you who stayed true, 
You've proven yourselves, so help me shepherd the rest of creation. The king shares his power. Because for the king, the power is not something to hold on to. It is something to be used for the sake of others. But the last reward is the best one. Jesus says that to those who are victorious, to those who are going to overcome, I will give the morning star. Now the Romans believed that they were the descendants of Venus. Because of course they did. Venus was the goddess of rule and of victory. Venus was the morning star. I don't know if you can see, this is supposed to be a solar system today. It's kind of what I was going for. Now you can see it, right? But Jesus is also called the morning star. Several times in the Gospel of John, but most importantly, towards the end of the book of Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. Jesus is saying that you will all be more like me because you held on through this temptation, through the compromise of those around you. I offer to you myself. It's a way of saying that the church that lives as an image of Jesus is a beacon in the darkness. See, The the planet Venus was most noticeable just before the dawn, when it was most dark out. It shone like this beacon just above the horizon. We've heard about the lampstands, how every church is meant to be a lampstand. They are not the light themselves, but they are the source of the light. And how they are a symbol of the tree of life. Their light is to be a life-giving light to the nations the bright beacon before the dawn of God's kingdom. See, Thomas asked Jesus at one point in his ministry, how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Or to say it another way, I was walking through this with Craig uh, earlier this week, and he said something from a former congregant of his that I think really hit home. God is not so concerned with how marked up our Bibles are, but how marked up we are by our Bibles. When we persevere through this temptation in our workplaces and in our homes, in our digital life on Facebook and Instagram or wherever, in our schools, on the roads, in our churches. The one with the eyes of flame and wisdom will see that. The one with strong, pure, dependable feet of bronze will see us through. You who are being pressured to fit into this mold of the world, you will eventually be part of its retraining. You who are to endure the temptation to give in to living it easier, but the lesser way, you will inherit the kingdom of God itself. So church, the world is trying to press you into something. But the word of Jesus today is that God will help us overcome. So persevere. 
Stay true to the end. Keep spending the time learning to recognize the voice of Jesus. Spend the important time in prayer, listening. Spend time in the scriptures, learning about who God is. Spend time in worship, opening your soul up to God. Spend time in community with other believers. If you're somebody who is really new to the faith, go find somebody who's been a Christian for a really long time. Learn from them. If you're someone who's been a Christian for a really long time, go find somebody who's a new Christian. Teach them. Be with them. Listen to them. And then together, go be God's amazing example to our world so that everyone can know the amazing mercy and grace of our Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, work in us so that you can work through us. We give you permission to smash us as clay pots if that is what is necessary, but Lord, we know that you make things beautiful that are broken. And so God, we trust you. Help us to be your image here in this world. Bring your kingdom. May it be a beacon to a world that needs you. In your name we pray together. All God's people said, Amen.